Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. We'll be continuing our series today called Remembering the Reformation with Dr. John Newfeld. The message title will be Sola Gratia. So let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Almost everyone is familiar with the hymn Amazing Grace. Many of us also know that the author of that hymn was John Newton, and he lived from 1725 to 1807. Newton was an Englishman and was the captain of a slave trading ship which transported captured African slaves to England to be sold there on an English slave market. That business was cruel and lacked in human compassion. But in 1748, Newton's ship was caught in a violent storm and he thought they would all drown. In desperation, he called out, Lord, have mercy upon us. Well, the ship made it through the storm, and Newton had time to reflect on what he had done. That is, he called on God for mercy. He began to believe that God had addressed him through the storm and that God had given him grace. So when you hear the lines in his hymn, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Well, in those lines, you can hear him talking of his own experience with the grace of God when he thought he was about to die. You know, until the day he did die, Newton believed that he first encountered grace on that day and marked it as the day when Christ took hold of him. But for most of us who read his story in our day, We may be shocked to learn that Newton carried on in his slave trade at least for some time. But in time, he would completely abandon his former way of life. Newton would later write, I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word until a considerable time afterwards. But he began to read the Bible, and he was deeply convicted about the humanity of his captives. And it was not until 1788, years after leaving the slave trade, that he finally published a pamphlet entitled Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade. There he described the horrible conditions of those on the ship, and he offered up a public apology for his participation in it. He wrote, It will always be the subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. That pamphlet became amazingly popular in England and was sent to every member of the British Parliament. I have no doubt that it had an influence when the British House of Commons finally voted to make the slave trade illegal. It is Newton's past in a business that was cruel and profoundly evil that no doubt had a part in those famous first lines of his hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. I remember once telling that story of John Newton when after the sermon, a woman approached me and she was quite upset. She said she didn't know that this was the story behind the song and that what I had said had changed everything. How could grace cover what this man had done? How about the lives and the families that this man had irredeemably altered? Maybe we can be happy for him, but what repairs the damage he did? Somehow, she said, this talk about grace leaves one deeply dissatisfied. Should we argue that a murderer who receives grace is saved and his victims who have not received it are damned? The more one thinks about it, the more unhappy one is with the doctrine. 
Indeed, she put her finger on the reason why so many of us have trouble with sola gratia, grace alone. But I had a question for her. What would she recommend would be a better outcome? Should John Newton be thrown away, or should he be condemned to hell, or perhaps a thousand years of suffering in purgatory until he finally gets how much suffering he caused to others? Well, she didn't know, but the idea of an instant pardon seemed unjust and would lead many others to feel that there need be no consequences for their sins. And it is this that troubles not only many people, but also troubled the medieval church as it thought about grace. You know, this is a series celebrating the upcoming 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. We've been examining the five solas of the Reformation, and today I want us to deal with the central idea of grace, or as it was said in Latin, sola gratia. Now, let's be clear about what we mean by grace. The biblical concept of grace is God's favor, or his goodness, poured out on those who are undeserving. And for the Reformers, that was very important. If it's true that we are saved by faith and by faith alone, then the question behind that is actually quite simple. Can there have been faith on our part unless it was grace first, or as John Newton said in his song, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." He meant that his fears were relieved when God's grace taught him to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. I'm going to come back to that. But I think what complicates the matter further is that for some of us, we have misunderstood the matter of grace. There has been a doctrine which has become known as the doctrine of free grace. So the argument runs something like this. Since we know that we are justified or forgiven of our sins by faith in Christ alone, what then do our works contribute to this matter? Well, apparently nothing. Now, I'll come back to that as well, so just hang in there with me for a little while. But by understanding faith alone as apart from works, there are those who argue that faith alone must then also mean faith apart from the necessity of repentance, apart from turning from our shameful past, faith alone, even while it might be that we go on sinning, and faith alone apart from any good works that follow conversion. Now, to be clear, the free grace folks are not saying that we shouldn't repent, nor that we should live carnal lives, but they are saying that even if we don't live righteous lives, we will only lose our reward, but our salvation remains secure. So for them, it's all free grace, that is, grace that is given even if there remains in us a deeply disobedient heart. Free grace folks argue that if we demand more than trust in Christ, given by the grace of God, we have begun a pathway towards works righteousness. Now, before I respond, I want you to notice the implications. When evangelism is done today, normally people are asked to receive Christ as Savior and Lord and not instructed to repent of or renounce their sinful practices. Furthermore, when people persist in rebellion, those who hold to free grace argue that just as long as they've received Christ, they can be assured of eternal life. So from that perspective, even if John Newton would have continued to be a slave trade captain for the rest of his life and prospered on human misery, yes, he should have repented, but even so, 
if as he sings in his song, the hour I first believed, or even the hour I truly believed, well, he would have been saved. Here we have a strange situation where believers in Jesus could prosper off of human misery, and unbelievers who work to end it find that in eternity, the roles are reversed. Those who trust in Christ are saved, even the slave traders. Now, do you think me too extreme in stating things this way? Consider Larry Flint. He was a pornographer and the producer of a magazine called Hustler Magazine who had a conversion experience in which he asked Christ to forgive his sins and come into his heart, but who carried on in his lucrative career in pornography. Far from being an extreme example, this kind of thing happens all the time in the evangelical world. It is for this reason that the woman who heard me speaking of John Newton was so angry. Perhaps she said I could produce one scripture verse after another and beat her in my argument about what the Bible says about justification by faith. But in the end, the entire doctrine, she said, is unjust. And because of this, it's profoundly important to ask the question, what does the Bible actually say about this matter called grace? Is it true that God saves by grace alone, or was the Catholic Church right when they insisted that grace came only by faith and works? As John the Baptist said so eloquently, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And yet, if we participate in earning our salvation, what then becomes of the idea of grace alone? Perhaps at least some would argue it is partially grace and partially human effort or partially works. And fascinatingly enough, I know a great many evangelicals who feel exactly like that. And because of that, they're constantly in fear that they have no assurance of eternity. Dark clouds of uncertainty shroud their lives. They find no joy in in God and indeed deeply fear that God will exact a recompense for their sins even yet. And so we see two different views, either grace alone or faith and works combined for our salvation, wherein it is not grace alone. Clearly, just like the reformers, we need to say sola scriptura. Let's find out what the Bible actually teaches about this difficult issue. A regular listener from Ontario wrote, It's absolutely refreshing to know that we have such an awesome Bible teacher on this side of the border. I've signed up for the daily audio mail, and words are not enough to express my genuine thanks. May Almighty God continue to bless and increase the work being done through Dr. Newfeld and the staff at Back to the Bible Canada. Well, we're so grateful. Grateful for our listeners, supporters, and the ministry that God has allowed us to participate in. If you'd like to help us sustain and grow this Bible teaching ministry, find out all the free resources available or just discover more about Back to the Bible Canada, call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 is one of the great grace passages in the Bible. This passage contains the very famous verses 8 and 9, which say, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. This passage is often quoted because in it we find how our salvation came to us. 
Technically, it's really not right to say that we're saved by faith, for we are, according to this passage, saved by grace. God has had mercy upon us and has applied the merits of Christ based upon his work on the cross into our lives. Our salvation is by grace and by grace alone. But the way in which this grace functions is by faith. Grace is applied to our lives through the agency not of our works or the merits of the church, but through faith, that is, through trust or confidence in Christ. It is from Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, that many a Christian has found confidence in their salvation. This passage is also often used in evangelism. When we share the gospel with someone, we tell them that all that is required is faith. But from this, we begin to wonder— Does this mean that all that is required is that we believe that Jesus died for us, and does that lead us to the doctrine of free grace? I think the only way to answer that is to read the entire passage in its context. Let's start with this very dark first three verses of the passage. The passage begins by describing the kind of life that all the fallen sons and daughters of Adam are leading. So let's read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now notice the description of the life outside of Christ. In a sense, as I read Ephesians 2 verse 1, I'm reminded of the horror movies of the past with titles like The Night of the Walking Dead or the more contemporary zombie movies. Paul describes people walking around in spiritual death, saying that they are dead in sins. Now, these words are not used for effect. Rather, they describe the true condition of every single child of Adam. Death is a non-reversible permanent condition. No one tries out death for a period of time and then decides, you know, it's not for me. Death is a static state, a state that we don't emerge from. And so Paul's not saying that we're physically dead, but that we're dead in sin or locked into sin, into a condition we cannot rescue ourselves from. See, that describes John Newton's slave trading career for economic advantages. All of these far outweighed his moral obligation to be his brother's keeper. He was lost in sin, and there was no way out. Paul then describes the mechanism whereby that's played out. For one, all the dead sons and daughters of Adam are followers of Satan. For his spirit is at work in all of us, leading us on an irrational path of throwing God's commands behind our backs. Furthermore, it's not just that we follow Satan. We also follow the desires of the flesh, allowing our sinful inclinations to dictate the pathway of our lives. And the final line is telling. Paul calls us children of wrath. He means that we're still held accountable for our actions. God holds us accountable for all of our misdeeds. You know, we might protest, you know, but I was dead toward righteousness, and that's surely true. But at the same time, it's not as if I'm not responsible for my actions. Indeed, as Paul describes following the prince of the air and living according to the passions of the flesh, he's describing an act of choice. We may be dead to God, but we're certainly alive to rebellion and to depravity, No, I couldn't help myself will serve as no excuse at all. Indeed, the real description is, I actively rejoiced in my rebellion. 
Now we come to verse 4 and two words which the late preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once called the mightiest adversative ever heard. The words he was referring to are the words, but God. See, we may be dead and there may be no way out of our predicament, but God. Death is not permanent with God. Jesus has already demonstrated that. Things may be irredeemably moving in one direction, but God. There are no two greater words found on earth than the words, but God. Should God in grace intervene, then all the things that must end in utter condemnation need never end that way again, but God. So let's read verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now from that there can be no doubt that the salvation of any lost person depends utterly and solely on grace. No grace, no deliverance from our spiritually dead state. It's not that spiritually dead people thought to turn from their disobedience. It is rather that God, in grace, intervened and saved men and women from the wrath that was rightfully theirs. Now to verses 6 and 7. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Please notice several important statements made by the apostle. In contrast to death, now comes resurrection. Death, remember, is characterized by rebellion, following the lead of Satan, and living according to the desires of the flesh. If that equals death, we have to assume that resurrection, or being raised with Christ, must constitute something very different. Now, you're going to notice the point of the passage. How can there be grace if that grace does not raise us up from the dead? Now, as we think about that, think also about the outcome of the resurrection that Paul describes. In the coming ages, God is going to showcase the kindness that he has shown in the objects of his mercy. Now, at this point, we are not told exactly what that kindness constitutes, but at the very least, we would have to conclude that the kindness God will showcase for all of eternity is how he in grace raised up the objects of his mercy from the spiritual death that they were in. Now to verses 8 and 9, which we've already read once. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one, that is, no saved person may boast. Verses 8 and 9, then, are the logical outworking of everything that's been set up to this point. Of course, it's not our own doing. After all, we were dead. Of course, we can't boast. And of course, we had produced no work that contributed to our salvation. All came because of the rich kindness of God. And so we were saved by grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. God's favor, his kindness was poured out onto a hell-bound, irredeemable sinner, and I believed in consequence of grace and grace alone. Now, we still have left aside one inescapable question. Does this grace of God, resulting in our resurrection from the dead, does this grace merely forgive our sins? Is that the eternal showcase of God's kindness? So let's let Paul himself answer that question in verse 10. There he writes, For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, verse 10 is a part of grace. It has nothing to do with works. You see, works righteousness does not equal obedience. Rather, good works, that is, sacrificial surrender to Jesus, a fight to put to death the misdeeds of the body, a resolute refusal to follow Satan and his dark world, all of that is the outworking of grace. Indeed, all of the obedience that now characterizes the object of God's eternal kindness, they live a resurrected life. And when we find ourselves living according to the eternal commands of God, we've got to conclude that I have become the obedient slave of Christ Jesus by grace and by grace alone. I take no credit for my godly life. It was grace that taught me first to fear, and grace my fears relieved. And that's why John Newton's life was changed from a slave trader to a servant of Jesus who would no longer be silent about his own sins, nor would he countenance them again. Unless grace transforms a life, it's no grace at all. If we do not repent and turn from our sins, it is an indicator that we have received no grace at all. That's why Martin Luther would say, we are saved by grace and by grace alone. But the grace that saves is not alone. It's always accompanied by works. But let us take no credit for our salvation or for our obedience to Christ. Sola gratia. God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ. God forbid that I would take even one modicum of credit for my salvation. It was always grace through faith that saved. Nothing can be added to that. John, this isn't an easy issue for a lot of people. I think we scramble sometimes to to figure it out. But why do you think people gravitate towards this sort of free grace doctrine? You know, I want to say at the outset, there are some good and godly people who hold this. And I I just think they're wrong. But, you know, to, to ascribe motive here is very difficult for me. But I think for many individuals, there is this unease that we feel about our own sin. We all struggle with some sin, you know, and we wonder what that actually means. And And the answer has to be that I'm relying not on overcoming my sins. I'm relying on Christ and what he's done by overcoming on my behalf. So in that, we want to, you know, completely agree. But if we strip from the doctrine of grace, the transformed life, then we're really stripping from the doctrine of grace, the richness in which God does transform a person. I think every true believer can say, I'm not what I'm going to be one day, but by God's grace, I am not what I once was either. And I think that has to be our testimony as we think about God's grace. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The newest issue of Truth and Life magazine is available to you this month. Great articles that will encourage, challenge, and draw you deeper into God's Word. Featuring Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway of Laugh Again, In Doubt Young Adult Leader Isaac Dagno, and a special interest article of testimony from Colonel Peter Rood regarding his experience and gratitude despite his time spent in a concentration camp, and much more. 
This month, we're focused on the importance of being grateful and extending that gratitude to others. You can receive your copy of Truth In Life magazine by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visiting us online at backtothebible.ca. Either way, it's free.